Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm so glad that you are joining us uh, for our show today. I was just looking at the poster, the sign that I put up in our office that I've mentioned before on the show. My sign says, Coronavirus Shelter in Place, Political Rewind Remotes. And just yesterday, I put up 29 weeks now that we've been doing the show uh, via remote. And, uh, And yet... The show carries on. I think uh, it feels pretty good uh, to be able to continue doing the show, even as I sit in the spare bedroom in our house just outside the city of Decatur. And, of course, I'm glad that you all continue to follow us. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, so I want to get to our panel. But first, I want to point out we are now four weeks from today that we will be going to the polls on November 3rd to vote, which is Pretty stunning when you think about it, that it is that close. Uh, Absentee ballots are uh, slowly getting to people's homes. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Early voting starts on Monday. Um, We're going to take a look at the uh, data on the Georgia Votes website to see if we can get an idea about who's been applying for absentee ballots and what it might tell us about uh, the direction the election is headed. A federal appeals court on Friday reinstated the deadline for Georgia voters to return their absentee ballots to uh, 7 p.m. on Election Day. Uh, Initially, a lower court had ruled that they could arrive three days after the 7 p.m. deadline on Election Day and still be counted. But the uh, uh, Court of Appeals overturned that. And we'll talk a little bit about the implications of that. Plus, uh, obviously, the president is back in the White House. He is not out of the woods, according to his doctors, but he believes that he needs to be there. And we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, the candidates on the Georgia ballot are responding to the way in which the president has dealt with his illness. So lots to talk about. Joining me today, as she does on virtually every Tuesday, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, Tamar Hallerman. How, how, Tamar, how are you doing? Not too bad. I'm blown away that we are less than a month out before the election. Unbelievable. <laughs> Un- I know. Yeah. It's stunning. It's stunning. Uh, well, thank you uh, for being with us today. Um, Riley Bunch is also with us today. She's the Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News. And Riley, I wanted to make sure uh, that people knew the newspapers around the state, outside of Metro, that gets your reporting. You have the Daily Citizen in Dalton, the Union Recorder in Milledgeville, the Moultrie Observer, Thomasville Times Enterprise, Valdosta Daily Times, and Tifton Gazette. So so those are papers that get your reporting on a regular basis, right? Yeah, absolutely. All of our papers are in rural areas, like you said, from north to south of Georgia. Well, thank you for uh, joining us again today. And back with us again, Kyle Hayes, who's the co-host and founder of Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast about Georgia politics. Kyle grew up here, University of Georgia graduate, went off to Washington to work for a major think tank, but continues to pay close attention to uh, uh, politics in Georgia. And Kyle, I always tell people, you guys do a terrific job, and I always recommend 
that uh, people subscribe to Peach Pod. You're you're sheltering in place now. Where are you in Florida that you've chosen to shelter in place? I'm outside the Was Tampa I not area supposed to say that? my parents. It, well, I'm not sheltering in place for health reasons, just for, for remote work and uh, getting the opportunity to spend some time with family that I haven't had before. You're... You're in the heart of one of the most important states in the November 3rd election. I mean, you're in exactly the right place. A lot of TV ads. A lot of TV ads. <laughs> I'm sure that's right. All right, let's get going. Uh, uh, Tamar, let's talk about this reversal that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals put in place uh, just the other day. And, and let me, let's explain what happened. Uh, a, a little more than a week ago, a district court judge agreed with plaintiffs who said that because of the pandemic and people having to file absentee ballots at a gra- in a greater number, that she agreed with plaintiffs that the deadline for accepting a ballot should be as long as it is postmarked, about, I'm sorry, received by three days after the election, but postmarked by the end of election day. Um, the appeals court, the 11th Circuit, which is conservative court, I uh, said, no, uh-uh. ballots have to come in uh, by 7 p.m. on election night or they won't be counted. What's the implication of that? It has a huge implication, especially because Georgia is so competitive this year, um, not only in the presidential level, but our Senate races and plenty of down-ballot state house races, especially in Metro Atlanta, that could turn on a couple hundred votes. And, and this ruling could lead to hundreds or thousands of, of ballots uh, being thrown out at the end of the day if they're not received by, by 7 p.m. on election night. So this could have a huge implication, especially in the suburbs where Democrats are trying so hard to, to flip uh, the state house and, and win over a lot of Republican seats. So, Kyle, this also, though, um, you know, I've, I've said on this show that I do believe that we as voters have some personal responsibility in doing our best to get our ballots postmarked or mailed earlier. And that's all well and good, but that relies on several things. It relies on the Secretary of State being able to continue processing this huge number of requests. And there are a lot of people who've been connecting with our show saying we're not getting our absentee ballots. Ravensburger insists they are on their way. They're going to get them all filled. And it depends on the United States. A state's postal service being able to deliver them on time. So yes, personal responsibility, but an enormous amount of work that must be done by others to make sure we get our ballots counted. Yeah, that's right. And I think for voters, though, the message to take away is all of that highlights the importance of voting early. You know, if you want to vote absentee, request that ballot now, turn it around when you get it. If you want to vote early in person, figure out when you can do that from your county elections officials and and wear your mask when you go. And if you're somebody who's sort of worried about, you know, you don't have time to vote, you don't have somebody to watch the kids on Election Day, that really underscores the importance of doing all of this stuff early, um, because there's a lot of things you can't control as a voter. All of the things that you just mentioned, Bill, about all of the processes and those should certainly be reviewed and improved upon in, in future elections. But as a voter, just do it early. Um, Riley, the Secretary of State insists uh, that, in fact, yes, they had an enormous surge. They had more than a million people apply for absentee ballots, which is why uh, a lot of people have not gotten theirs quite yet. 
Um, as I said, we've gotten I've gotten a number of emails and tweets from people saying, when am I getting my ballot? He insists they've now cleared up that backlog of a million people will get them in the next week. And then he says the rest will be easier to process. But it is incumbent on their office to make sure they do get these out. And they work with a mailing house in Arizona that contracts out for this, right? Yes, it, it is in the Secretary of State's responsibility to get these ballots to voters in time. And they have, you know, a very complicated system of where it's sent to multiple different locations. And we're really just going to have to wait and see. They said they're going to get them there. And it's in the next week or so that we'll see if that's the reality. Tamara, is there any reason to think that um, that initial uh, district court ruling, which gave us three days leeway, was in fact going to complicate things a bit? I understand that, that the urgency of people wanting their ballots counted, but there are so many concerns that have been uh, uh, expressed about what happens if the election is still not over on election night, if Trump declares himself a winner on election night, there's still ballots to be counted in the days and maybe even a week afterward, that does have the potential to get very confusing. And that's something, that's an argument that we heard from the Secretary of State's office as they appealed this ruling. They just said it's going to lead to so much confusion. It could lead to mischief in terms of ballots. Um, They also cited, and and we saw the the judges in the 11th Circuit when they ultimately overturned the, the lower court ruling, citing a precedent from the Supreme Court that cautions against making huge new new changes to election administration right before an election because it does create so much confusion and additional uh, hurdles for elections officials on the local level. Um, All right. So let's look. Let's take a look at uh, what we know so far about the applications for ballots. This does not mean that these are votes already counted. They haven't been. These are this is data provided by Georgia Votes, which has become just a great website for people to keep track of what's happening with voting in Georgia. Um, So here's the data about requests for absentee ballots. So far in the 2020 general election cycle, 1.5 million people, to be specific, 1,449,673 people have have applied to vote by mail. At the same point in the 2016 general election, the number was 140,000. Uh, so it's a 935 percent higher at this point. Uh, Riley, this tells us a lot about the appetite that people have to vote in this election and also how many people are nervous about voting in person. Yes. Yeah, I think it is really indicative of just the climate that we're in right now. We have such a large number of um, requests for absentee ballot applications. And I was speaking with a political science professor down in Florida, and she thinks that mail-in balloting is really going to finally achieve what it was designed to do, which is, you know, diversify the pool of voters. And But the thing that we have to think about is how much is the pandemic playing into this? So I will be curious to see if we get these numbers in the next election if the pandemic is not a factor. Okay, so let's look at uh, just a few of the demographics of these applications and see if we can make anything out of them. Uh, Kyle, let me give you the first shot at this. In terms of race, um, the applications by race uh, show us that 54% of the applications are from white voters, 30.6%, 31% basically, 
from uh, black voters, 2.5% Hispanic, lower for Asians and others. So it, what's interesting about that, Kyle, is 30% black uh, applications pretty much mirrors the universe of African-American voters compared to the total universe of voters in a Georgia election. Yeah, and I actually would have expected that number to be slightly higher, um, given that polling is showing that um, Republicans are less likely to be voting absentee, um, more interested in going to the polls on Election Day. So you would expect that some of these, particularly the early applications, would sort of skew a little bit towards Democrats. Um, so I think that there's there's a little bit of a concerning data point there. Another place where I think there may be an encouraging data point for Democrats is in a lot of places, uh, between 25 and 33 percent of voters who have requested absentee ballots so far did not vote in the 2016 election. And if these uh, requests are skewing towards Democrats, there's a lot of new voters who didn't vote in 2016 who may be pulling Democratic uh, voting for Democratic candidates this time around. And the thing about this this race right now is unlike the primary where where as a voter you have to request a Democratic or a Republican or a nonpartisan ballot, we don't know much about kind of who these voters are or which party they're going to go to. We're, we're assuming based on, on race or, or kind of other factors right now. Um, one thing that's really jumping out to me looking at this data is the giant gender gap in terms of the, the percentage of yeah. people who have requested absentee ballots. 57% of them are women compared to 42% of men. And that sort of mirrors the, the gender divide that we're seeing in polls both nationally and in Georgia when it comes to Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, uh, women going for, for Biden by more than 10 percentage points over Trump. Yeah, you know, Riley, uh, that really struck me, too. Boy, a lot more women so far requesting absentee ballots. Again, this doesn't tell us what's going to happen, how many of these ballots will be turned in, how many people will vote in person. But that's a startling statistic. Yeah, I think it's really just going to be the most, probably the most decisive demographic there is in the Atlanta suburbs right now. And especially since we know that um, the Republican campaign for Trump is pushing the use of absentee ballots as well. They carry absentee ballot applications on them as they're door knocking in these suburbs. So we really don't know what party could be for, but it's going to be decisive. All right, I've got to take a break. Um, as you know, we have been really fortunate in that we are in the middle of a radio pledge drive. We only do it twice a year. As most of you who are regular listeners know, we've been fortunate because our bosses have said, look, Political Rewind matters to people. We're not going to interfere with your show the way uh, that we have in the past in terms of having to ask people to pledge money. But on a few of our shows, we are giving you the chance to help support the work we do here at GPB Radio. I know it's a tough time. I know people are dealing with the pandemic. I know people are worried about issues like racial justice. Um, there are people out there who are not working right now. But if you can help us, I hope you will, because Political Rewind has tried to be with you every day talking about the issues that matter. If you've already given us uh, your support, thank you so much. If not, here's how you can do it. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. That is the only pledge break we are taking during Political Rewind. That's different. We usually take three. Um, So please, if you can help us, go to gpb.org. We would appreciate your support. Um, As most of you know, yesterday we've had truly a living legend uh, as a guest on our show, Dr. Bill Fage, former director of CDC, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom winner, um, a man, the man who him really led the effort, devised the plan, and led the effort to eradicate smallpox. And just yesterday, came on the show uh, because he was uh, the co-chair of a committee at the National Institute of uh, Medicine that uh, t- came up with the plan for how a vaccine will be distributed. Who gets it first? Who gets it next? Uh, if when that vaccine becomes available during the conversation. Uh, we asked Dr. Fage about the circumstances of the political involvement today of the White House with the work that CDC uh, and other public health organizations are trying to do. Let's listen to what he said. We've never seen anything like the political pressures of today. And it hurts me greatly to see what's happened to public health because of that. It just does not make sense that people make decisions that are actually harming uh, the, the public. So um, Bill Fage, uh, uh showed his expressed his concern. Um, Tamar, it, I, I, I played that again today because um, the way in which we're seeing people react, first, the way the president himself is responding to having gotten uh, COVID-19. But we have a tweet from uh, Kelly Leffler that uh, she put out on Friday when the president's diagnosis was released, blaming China for his COVID-19 diagnosis, saying that the country should be held accountable for Trump's condition. And uh, she subsequently, when the, hus- when the president said he was leaving the hospital, uh, Walter Reed put up a tweet with a video that showed Trump wrestling with a character with a COVID-19 virus for a head, throwing him to the ground and essentially saying in her tweet, COVID was no match for President Trump. Well, Tamar, first of all, uh, the president's own doctors say he is not out of the woods yet. And second of all, um, this effort by some of the Trump Republicans to downplay this virus is exactly what Bill Fage is talking about. And what we've seen from Kelly Loeffler, of course, echoes what we've seen from the president himself over the last couple of days. Uh, when he returned back to the White House yesterday evening from Walter Reed, he mentioned, hey, maybe I'm immune from from this virus. Uh, you saw him when he, he climbed the, the steps of the, the Truman balcony, uh, rip off his mask and kind of stand there for the, the world to see. So uh, in many ways, it's not surprising to, to kind of see um, that. What's been interesting more to me is kind of reading a lot of these stories in the national press about uh, some of the background talks that, that some of Trump's aides have had. There, there were some who, who believed maybe Trump battling this virus and then coming out the other side would, would help provoke sympathy amongst voters who, who maybe don't love Trump's sharp style. And you haven't seen Trump kind of play that card. If anything, 
he, he's kind of tried to, to maintain that, that kind of strong image. Like I'm, I'm, you know, this, this disease isn't going to affect me uh, less of kind of playing that sympathy card that, that maybe could have helped him with certain voters. You know, Riley, it strikes me that Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler are in something of a bind right now uh, because they are essentially competing, although it's not a primary, they are competing in among the, they're the two Republicans hoping to emerge from Senate race number two on November 3rd, uh, one of them to emerge for a runoff. Um, and so they can't afford to move even an inch away from the president, even as other Republicans, like even Mitch McConnell, uh, who said yesterday, we've got to take this virus seriously. Leffler and Collins can't afford to even move away from him in terms of how he's dealing with COVID. Yeah, you're right, Bill. Senator Leffler and Representative Doug Collins are in kind of this who is the most conservative, who backs Trump the most, this battle. And I thought it was actually interesting to see um, Senator Leffler tweet and call COVID-19, you know, the China virus, when of note, Don, um, the president did not call it the China virus in his videos from Walter Reed. You know, he said um, COVID, coronavirus. And I thought that was really, really indicative because Senator Leffler is still, you know, pushing this very, very far right narrative um, because she needs to, because Doug Collins has this Republican record already and she does not. Well, and it extends beyond just the reaction to Trump's diagnosis and, and how he's battled COVID-19, it also extends to all of the other major issues that deserve discussion in this campaign. We've had more than 200,000 people die of COVID in this country. We have 4 million people who have been permanently laid off, and that's damage to the economy that's not going to bounce back quickly. And I think Georgia voters deserve to hear from all of the candidates running in these races about what they would do about some of these bigger issues. But Collins and Leffler are kind of in this prisoner's dilemma with each other, where if one person started to talk about solutions to those issues, the other person would take that as an implicit criticism of the president and jump on that. And so neither of them, unless they agreed to sort of set that aside and talk about the future, which they haven't and don't appear poised to do, um, we're just going to continue to see messaging like this all the way through Election Day. Um, you know, Tamar, uh, it, it's interesting that Leffler, in her tweet about holding China accountable for Trump getting the virus, opened a door that she, maybe her campaign folks didn't really realize they were going to open, but it gave Doug Collins an opportunity to point out that uh, that her husband, Jeff Sprecher, who runs, among other things, the New York Stock Exchange and other world exchanges, has at least 10 companies, and I think maybe more, uh, that are uh, listed on the exchange that are Chinese, to some extent, Chinese state-owned companies. And, and the, the, the um, Collins people just put out a, a, a news release that I got this morning saying, uh, Jubilee rang out among leaders of the Chinese Communist Party yesterday as appointed Senator Kelly Leffler and her husband declined to delist de Chinese state-owned enterprises from their stock exchange. I mean, it's really opened up a can of worms. You know, I wonder how much an issue like this, though, is, is truly going to win over voters at this point. Like, all of these campaigns have shown they'll use any opening to, to hit each other. And I wonder how much, especially with undecided voters who are worried about getting their kids to school and making sure their families are safe and that they have jobs, I wonder how much that 
you know, actually concerns them or even members of the GOP base who probably have their votes figured out. Uh, but we've seen this with every single twist and turn of this race, finding any opening and, and taking advantage of that. I definitely agree with Tamar. I don't know how much of an actual impact that these kind of undercuts will have on actual campaign and voters' decisions, but I think it really does underscore the challenge that Senator Leffler has had from separating herself from her past, you know, from her elite social circles, and now she's really trying to push to this far right, and, you know, it's hard to get away and create this entirely new persona when you have this old past to go off of. And I think the... The reason that we are in this place, I think actually um, both Collins and Leffler can kind of be grateful to Democrats for not coalescing around one candidate and not presenting the possibility that a Democrat could maybe get 50 percent plus one in the, the November vote and avoid a runoff. So this really has become a primary between both sides, and that's why you see Collins and Leffler continuing to go at it this way. They don't have a political imperative between now and election day to try to talk to swing voters or potentially bringing voters who have soured on President Trump back to their side. The whole ballgame for them right now is winning uh, the conservative base. Okay, uh, but Kyle, I want to thank you for that, but I want to follow up on this notion of um, that that Riley and Tamar think, um, and they very well may be right, that uh, it's it's wrong of me to imagine that a, a, a you know, fight over uh, – Jeff Sprecher's uh, Chinese companies in the New York Stock Exchange may not impact voters. At the same time, Kyle, the president has certainly made it clear that he thinks Joe Biden is a uh, is is a uh, uh, a willing accomplice of the Chinese government. They they for a while really thought that was going to be a major campaign issue that they would use against him. Uh, that hasn't developed the way uh, they probably expected it to, given all that's gone on. But um, if the Trump campaign is going to argue that Biden is a willing accomplice of the Chinese, uh, then then it is hard for Leffler to duck these accusations that her husband's stock exchange is dealing with state-controlled companies. Yeah, and I mean, I, certainly you could see that as an issue that Collins would probably <laughs> lean into in more conservative media, media outlets that are speaking directly to the conservative base and probably only to them. Um, you know, Kelly Leffler will probably shoot back that she's the only candidate who's voted 100 percent with President Trump. You know, they'll they'll raise different points on both sides of this debate to to prove how close they are to the president. This whole uh, fight over uh, China and uh, uh, NYSE having 10 Chinese companies on the exchange, all this plays to a bigger issue that we've seen Collins use over and over and over again that, that may resonate even more with the Republican base, which is that Leffler is a gazillionaire who works with giant companies who, you know, who, whose business background, um, you know, maybe isn't as, um, what's the word, that, that your average voter might not be able to relate to, that she's so wealthy that, you know, yeah. you see this in, in his attacks on her airplane, Air Leffler, and talking about her wealth. And I think you know, it all plays to that theme, and, and perhaps that's an issue that can resonate more with your average voter in a place like Dalton or, or Rome or, or downstate somewhere. Well, it's interesting you said Dalton, Tamar, because uh, I want to share with our listeners just a little bit uh, the lead paragraph and a couple paragraphs in of a 
a fairly biting New York Times uh, piece yesterday on Leffler and her campaign. Um, and the byline on it is Dalton, Georgia, Tamar. Here's, here's the lead to that piece on Leffler. The headline is how <laughs> Kelly Leffler went from Atlanta elite to Trump loyalist. Kelly Leffler is not just a United States senator and a successful businesswoman. She's also one of the social doyens of Buckhead, the Atlanta neighborhood of the wealthy and aspiring rich, where she's often thrown open the gates of her $10.5 million European-style manse known as Descante, I don't know how to say, I'm not a good French speaker, for charity fundraisers. The role requires maintaining a certain unruffled poise, so it was impossible to know what Miss Leffler was thinking as she rolled up to a brew pub in Dalton, Georgia in late August for a campaign event and was greeted by Marjorie Taylor Greene, a fellow Republican who just won a House primary after promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory and making offensive remarks about black people, Jews, and Muslims. Uh, Riley, uh, you'd done an earlier profile on... on uh, Kelly Leffler. And so this kind of resonated with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we were talking just before the show that it was back in August that I wrote the candidate profile of Senator Leffler. And it was really fresh off of her first statewide <laughs> tour where she was starting to, you know, develop this persona, pushing far to the right. Even I was surprised to see her, you know, at a uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene event. Um, it really kind of goes to show, you know, how far she is pushing um, to win over this conservative voter base. And it, it's like the New York Times said, I think they use the word conforming um, to this, you know, Trump's Republican Party. And it, it was pretty crazy to see for me. Well, it looks like we lost Bill. It seems like his connection has failed. So I guess I'm going to throw a question out to the group before we go back to uh before we go back to the the break um so we, we mentioned how senator leffler was attending a marjorie taylor green event right after she uh won the republican nomination marjorie of course has been a really controversial candidate and i'm wondering whether you think you know we've talked about her pivoting toward the republican base um is there any risk for for Kennedy or for uh, senator leffler in embracing somebody like marjorie taylor green especially as she tries to win over some some of those people in the base I think there might be a little risk. You know, we saw Senator Leffler, she was appointed, and it's pretty well known that she was appointed to, you know, appeal to this moderate base, and that that was, you know, her original stance. And I think that, you know, maybe, maybe some of the far-right voters will kind of see through this, see through this shift in persona, um, but we really can't say. I also think there's some long-term risk in this play, um, you know, in the short run, it, it maybe is the best strategy for her to win a spot in the runoff. Um, it is possible that the runoff could be hugely consequential. Control of the U.S. Senate could be on the line. And then even further down the line, if Kelly Loeffler is ultimately successful, she wins two more years in this seat. She has to run again in 2022. And she's on the ballot with Governor Kemp at a time where both her and Governor Kemp are going to be in more traditional competitive statewide races. And I'm curious if, you know, it feels like everybody has a short memory these days, but I'm curious if some of these positions and the way in which she's framing herself now, um, you know, lingers into 2022. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we, we talk about the impact after 2022, if she wins, but even if we get to January and say she does defeat Doug Collins and it ends up being a head-to-head contest with Raphael Warnock and all of a sudden she has to pivot to the middle, it's possible that that, that could be a liability. Um, it's also interesting just to compare Leffler right now, that race compared to the Purdue race, uh, where, of course, you know, he's been a key ally of Donald Trump and 100 percent embraced him. But you're not hearing him talk about it nearly as much in a lot of his campaign messaging lately, especially as, as polling has tightened up uh, with John Ossoff. What do you think is going on, Riley? Well, I don't think Senator Purdue really needs to push his loyalty to Trump as much as Senator Leffler does. Like we said, Senator Leffler has a lot of risk and she's up against um, Doug Collins. Senator Purdue is up against, you know, Democratic candidate um, John Ossoff, which they could not be more polar opposites. We know that Senator Purdue is loyal to Trump. We know that John Ossoff is a very Democratic candidate. Senator Purdue doesn't need to push his loyalty as much as Senator Leffler does. I also thought it's interesting. I've observed Purdue sort of taking part in a, in a two-part campaign. Um, to some extent, his mailers and, and messaging that's targeted at some of the same voters that Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins are appealing to, it's much sharper about John Ossoff calling him a radical and, and bringing up old um, old messages from Republicans going back to when he ran, when Ossoff ran in the 6th Congressional District, tying um, his media company to Al Jazeera. And uh, Jim Galloway has an excellent piece in the AJC from the weekend that that listeners should check out. Um, But he's also running ads on TV saying that he uh, supports uh, pre-existing condition protections in the Affordable Care Act and, and framing himself in a different way. So he, I think, given the closeness of that race, it's interesting to watch him run sort of a two-part messaging campaign. Well, great. I'm going to throw it a break, and when we get back, we'll start talking about COVID and its impact on GOP events. This is Political, Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Bill Nygut is having some technical issues, but hopefully he'll be back with us soon. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I am back. Um, we had a complete system failure uh, here at uh, my house, and I, I just caught the last couple of uh, moments of uh, tomorrow. You're doing a terrific job uh, filling in for me in an emergency setting, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, so tomorrow, Hallerman, Kyle, Hayes, Riley Bunch are all with us. Tamar, what did you tell everybody we were going to talk about when we got back from this break? <laughs> First of all, I'm sweating my buns off. You make this look so easy, Bill. So I want to talk about COVID and and Republican events. Uh, After the president president tested or or announced on Friday that he tested positive, uh, initially, I think a lot of us thought that maybe Republicans would stop holding a lot of their bigger events uh, with a lot more than 50 people where a lot of folks aren't wearing masks, a lot of folks aren't social distancing. But 
we have seen certain events go forward, especially over the weekend. So, uh, Riley, I want to ask you about that and whether you're surprised that, that certain Republicans have, have moved forward with events and whether you think Trump's um, kind of defiant show yesterday at the White House, taking his mask off, talking about how he, he might be immune from this virus, whether you think that'll impact the way Georgia Republicans hold events and talk about this virus. Yeah, I do not think that it's going to impact events um, at all, just because the president is still putting off this air of don't be afraid, you know, in quotes, and you, that you, ha- you can beat COVID and don't let it control your life, I think he said. But I think it is also really important and interesting to note that the CDC updated their, um, their section online about how COVID spreads yesterday to acknowledge the fact that COVID may be able to spread in enclosed spaces with poor ventilation for more than six feet, also after a positive person has left the area. Um, So I think that was really interesting timing, but I really don't think this is going to impact how Georgia Republicans are going to go about their campaign. You know, Kyle, there is a certain amount of dismay we're hearing expressed rather quietly in some Republican circles that um, President Trump's diagnosis was an opportunity to reset on how he uh, spoke about the virus um, and and could say we need to take it seriously. And instead, of course, he's gone uh, completely the other way and, and, and said he feels better than he's felt in 20 years. And so far, the early polling we've seen on this suggests that people are not uh, uh, impressed. They think the president's done a bad job uh, with the way he's handled his own uh, 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 health condition. And and so the reset hasn't taken place. Well, and to give you a sense of how big of a missed opportunity this was, you know, multiple times over the weekend, broadcast news broke into football games and other regular programming to update on the president's condition. This, The fact that he was diagnosed with COVID and, and contracted it really focused the entire you know, news media's attention on this one event and gave him a unique and unusually large platform to send a positive public health message, and he didn't take the opportunity. And the fact that not only did he not take the opportunity, but the skepticism that he raised, I think, further undermines the public health messaging coming from people in his administration and other public health officials at the state and local level that are concerned about the, where we're headed with this pandemic as fall and winter come. Yeah, this could have been a moment where Trump could have maybe gotten some sympathy points from voters, which is not something you'd ever think of with Donald Trump. But, you know, you saw it a little bit in the UK when Boris Johnson, the prime minister, caught COVID and it did help him for a time in the polls. So, uh, but, but that's something that kind of goes against Trump and and kind of this strong image he likes to project to the world. And you saw this uh, yesterday when they announced that the upcoming VP debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, they were going to have plastic or plexiglass dividers at the request of the Biden campaign. And you saw the Trump campaign give Kamala Harris a hard time about that and mentioning, oh, well, if she wants to kind of fortress herself off, go for it. Um, You know, Tamar, you've probably experienced this yourself working on the Hill, but um, One of the things that I think a lot of people, regardless of their partisan affiliation, uh, saw on uh, Sunday was this this drive by that the president did uh, in which he got into his limousine, his hermetically sealed uh, bulletproof limousine to wave at the people, the supporters who were gathered there to uh, cheer him on. And and the 
the reality is he was in close quarters with Secret Service agents who have a sworn duty to protect the president of the United States. And we've now heard several of them talk anonymously about their concerns about this. And the, what I started to say to you, tomorrow is I'm sure working on the Hill, you've dealt with Secret Service over the years. I certainly dealt with them all the time traveling on presidential campaigns. They are dedicated, determined to uh, protect the people they're assigned to, no more so than in the protective detail of the president of the United States. And yet they're put at enormous risk uh, in this kind of setting. So it goes beyond Secret Service. There's there are hundreds of people who work in the White House, from maids to cooks to valets and butlers, and you know they're all dedicated to making sure that the first family is is comfortable and safe. And a lot of them see it as their responsibility, not to an individual president, but to the office of the president. And so, especially if a lot of those people tend to be people of color, lower income, they're already at higher risk for uh, for contracting COVID and having serious implications because of that. And so, yeah, I think the longer this goes on, the, the more anonymous comments we're going to start seeing. And Riley, to bring it back to Georgia, um, there is not a Republican candidate on the ballot who didn't wasn't hopeful that in the last few weeks of this campaign, the messaging could change, that the emphasis on coronavirus could be dismissed, that, that there could be other messaging that came along to supplant it. But there is no question now whether you are running for re-election as president or running to uh, beat Lucy McBath in the 6th Congressional District, you are going to have to deal with the coronavirus. Yeah, you, they can't avoid it. They, they've tried to, you know, deflect from um, the president's COVID response for such a long time throughout this entire campaign. And um, the president contracting COVID, as well as what Kyle said, you know, this missed opportunity for him to change his messaging about COVID. The Republicans in Georgia, they're going to have to respond to that. And it will be very, very interesting to see um, if any of them will come back, you know, um, with slightly different messaging or they're going to stick to, you know, being loyal behind the president and whatever he says goes. Tomorrow and then Kyle. Sure. At the same time, there's still four weeks until the election, and we've seen just how quickly the news cycle changes. This time last week, we were talking about Trump's tax returns and Amy Coney Barrett. Who knows what these next four weeks have in store for us? Uh, uh, four years ago, this week was when we got the Access Hollywood tape, and we thought that would doom President Trump, and it didn't. So who knows what will change? I appreciate that dose of reality. Kyle, you get the last word today. <laughs> Well, I, I agree with Tamara, and I, you know, it's unclear whether or not I believe the Amy Coney Barrett hearings are going to continue. So it's likely that takes back over the news cycle. So, agree with Tamara. More to come, and and um, but COVID will be here as a part of the storyline as well. Kyle Hayes, Riley Bunch, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a terrific conversation. I apologize to all of you out there listening about the technical difficulties we had, Tamar. Uh, what I heard from you is you could have hosted this whole show. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in in an emergency. Um, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to throw it back to our pledge team for one final message today on how you can help support GPB Radio. And as I again thank the panel for today, um, I'm Bill Nygut. I'll be back tomorrow. And in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.